My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm a professor at Bowling Green State University. Several times each year, I get the opportunity to present my recent research findings to other scholars at various national and international conferences. Recently, I had such an opportunity at the annual conference of the American Society of Criminology, where I presented research on civil actions filed in federal court pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1983 involving sworn law enforcement officers who had also been identified in my research database as having been arrested for one or more crimes while serving as a sworn officer. Let's listen in. So it's already after 2 o'clock, so we might as well get going, although I don't know where the other panelists are. It'll give us a little bit more time, and we'll wrap up early and have plenty of time for questions. And if they join us late, we'll, we'll deal with that. So my name is Phil Stinson. I'm on the faculty at Bowling Green State University. And I'm principal investigator on NIJ-funded research study investigating police crime, that is, officers who are arrested for committing crimes. So this is a small piece of this project that I wanted to uh, report on today, specifically dealing with officers officers who were arrested who also at some point during their career, either before or after they're arrested, but while they're a law enforcement officer, have been sued in federal court uh, for a cause of action arising under 42 U.S.C. 1983. So just briefly in terms of a lit review on police crime, we don't need to go into much detail here. We're guided by some of the independent commission reports over the years that tell us a lot about police crime in a few jurisdictions. So the Knapp Commission, the Mullen Commission in New York, the Pennsylvania Crime Commission in the 1970s in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Uh, we're also guided by investigative reporting by newspaper reporters, and there are some great series of articles over the years in various papers that have really sort of informed us in some of the problems in individual departments. And then a variety of studies dealing with police crime, and with the exception of our study, I'm not aware of any studies that deal with many agencies. They're typically one agency, or in the case of Albert J. Rice, uh, less than half a dozen agencies, but not looking at uh, a large number of agencies. So in terms of civil litigation against the police, it's really hard to get a good handle on it. We know from the federal courts that about 37,000 civil actions are filed a year that include a civil rights cause of action. In other words, on the civil action cover sheet filed in the clerk's office in the U.S. District of Court, they check off nature of suit and 440 other civil rights is checked off in about 37,000 cases a year. And that's not just uh, lawsuits that are civil rights cases involving police departments and police officers or law enforcement officers and law enforcement agencies, but all sorts of state actors. So there have been research studies that have suggested that about 30,000 civil suits are filed each year against police officers, and that's in both federal and state courts. And then some survey research in, in a few agencies has suggested that between 17 and 27 percent of all police officers at some point during their law enforcement career are named as a defendant in a civil action in court. And again, that's both state and federal. We're looking at uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983, which codifies the Civil Rights Act of 1871. It's also commonly referred to as the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. So we're looking at state actors acting under the color of state law to violate somebody's federally protected rights. And most of the lawsuits, although not all of them, that we're dealing with deal with policy or customs of uh, local law enforcement agencies. In terms of 
Section 1983, as it developed over the last 50 years or so, it was dormant for the first 100 years after it was passed by Congress and enacted into law. But if we look at Section 1983 and the whole area of constitutional torts as it's developed, there are several things that I think are important. Three of them are U.S. Supreme Court cases, starting with Monroe v. Pape in 1961, and where the Supreme Court there held that individual officers can be liable under 1983. However, in that case, they said municipalities could not be sued under Section 1983. And that part of the holding of that case was overturned in 1978 in Monell, where the court held that municipalities are indeed persons for the purposes of Section 1983 litigation, and then sort of rounding it out with Owen versus City of Independence, municipalities cannot claim good faith defenses to constitutional violations. And I also think it's important we talk about the development of practice area of constitutional torts as far as attorneys are concerned. It's important to mention the Civil Rights Attorneys Fees Award Act of 1976, which is codified at 42 U.S.C. 1988, which provides for prevailing plaintiff attorneys fees awards in civil rights cases, including 1983 actions. Again, this is part of a larger study on police crime arrest. It relies substantially on a content analysis of news articles. And here we're using the federal court's PACER database, public access to court's electronic records database, to gain information. So what we have is the names of individual officers who've been arrested. And I'll give you some specific numbers of how many we have. And what we're able to do is because of the historical way in which uh, 1983 civil actions are captioned, generally, still to this day, the individual officers are named as party defendants. A case against uh, John Smith, a police officer in and for the, the city of San Francisco, for example, would be considered a lawsuit against the agency that they work for as long as it's filed uh, as a lawsuit against them in their official capacity. What we have here is in the PACER system, there's a master name index. And the reason, in great part, I think that there's a master name index is the statute that authorized the uh, administrative office of US courts to set up the public access to courts electronic record system only allowed them to charge for usage of the system until they had paid for it. So every time they get caught and they get whacked by Congress for continuing to charge, even though they paid for the system, they make improvements. And one of the great improvements improvements for my purposes is the master name index. So here you can see, this is just a screenshot of the uh, PACER case locator system where we look at civil actions and here putting a party name in. So we put a last name, first name in, and then uh, we narrow it down to the specific circuit or district where we're interested in looking. So in terms of some of the strengths and limitations of this research, the strengths are Google News and the Google News search engine, which is what I'm interested, coupled with uh, Google Alerts that send us automated hits every time there's a hit on one of our 48 alerts, has become a preferred method in content analysis research. So obviously we're studying a hidden area of crime. It's real hard to get a grip on you know, the nature and extent of crime committed by police officers because there aren't official uh, statistics that are kept by any law enforcement agencies or government entities. So our data are limited to cases that involve an official arrest. The research is limited by the content and the quality of the information that we have in each case. And we acknowledge that there's a filtering process that the media exercises in terms of discretion, in terms of what's newsworthy and what's printed. And in terms of the PACER name index, if we have a name that's spelled wrong, that's going to be a problem, too, in terms of limitations. So again, the quality of the uh, information that we have is paramount here. So in terms of 
the seven-year study that we're completing now for NIJ, we have 6,724 arrest cases involving 5,545 non-federal sworn law enforcement officers employed by state, local law enforcement agencies across the country. And those arrested officers involved in those cases were employed by 2,529 law enforcement agencies in 1,205 counties and independent cities in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. And again here, this graphically displays in terms of on a map what it looks like. Here we're looking at the rate of arrest case per 100,000 population. So the, the redder the color is, the more cases we have in terms of, or the higher the rate is per 100,000 population. So as you can see, it's really not an isolated thing. It's all over the country. We don't pretend to suggest that we have every case where a police officer has been arrested in our database, but we certainly have an awful lot. By the way, since this study, we're looking at 2005 through 2011, we're continuing to collect data. I think by the time I get back to my office next week in Ohio, that we'll be at about 10,000 cases. We're at about 9,937 cases when I looked before I left in terms of being logged into our database involving over 8,500 officers. So that's a lot of police officers and it's a lot of arrest cases. If we look at the seven years of data, just some descriptive statistics in terms of 5.5% of the cases involve female officers, and that's pretty much the way we've seen it between 4 and 7% in the different studies that we've done are female officers. It's all over the map in terms of age and years of service. One interesting thing in terms of years of service, and I noticed this with my dissertation research, which was the first three years of data, and I've noticed it in everything we've done since then, prior research would suggest that officers if they're going to act up and misbehave and get in trouble, it's going to be in the first few years of their law enforcement career. And then if they remain in the job, they're not going to be getting in trouble. They're just going to ride it out. And that's not what we see. We see these bumps uh, right before retirement eligibility. So we see bumps at 18 to 20 years, 23 to 25, 28 to 30, 33 to 35 years. Over 20% of the arrest cases that we see involving police officers are officers who are within three years of retirement eligibility. I'm not sure what's driving it, but it's an interesting thing. In terms of the most serious offense charged in each of the cases. We have 65 offense uh, variables in our research study. 57 of them are from the NIBRIS, the National Incident-Based Reporting System, and then we've added uh, seven or eight that are things that we see come up time and time again but aren't in the uh, NIBRS category. So online solicitation of a child is one that comes to mind, violation of a protection order, a restraining order, uh, vehicular hit and run, things like that. So if we look here at the most serious offense charged in each of these cases, you can see it's a really multifaceted, complex thing when we talk about crime by police officers. It's all kind of stuff. And unfortunately, assault, when you combine aggravated assault and simple assault, really are the, the big thing up there in terms of the, uh, the largest number of cases in terms of most serious offense charged. We see an awful lot of driving under the influence cases, which really interests me because Police officers, law enforcement officers are generally exempt from law enforcement, especially with DUI. So there's something about those cases where they lost their exemption. It's typically car accidents, flipping over cars, driving into fire trucks, fire stations, fire hydrants, uh, all kinds of things like that, knocking down mailboxes, things you can't explain without writing a report. Here, if we look at officers who've been arrested, remember, our unit of analysis here is officer arrest cases as opposed to the arrested officers. So here we see that of our 
arrest cases of sworn law enforcement officers. 24% of those cases involve officers who've been sued at some point in their career in federal court for a civil rights cause of action under 42 U.S.C. 1983. And then I have a typology, and they're not mutually exclusive categories, but I say that almost all crime by police officers, by sworn law enforcement officers, is alcohol-related, drug-related, violence-related, sex-related, and or profit-motivated. And if I had to look at the few cases that are remaining after that, it's revenge-motivated crimes. It's very strange. So here we see of the cases where an officer has been arrested for a drug-related crime, 31.4% of those involve officers who've been sued at some point in federal court. So it's followed by violence, sex, profit-motivated, and alcohol. But we see a big difference depending on what kind of crimes they're committed or are they being sued in federal court. So the officers who are arrested for drug-related crimes tend to be more likely to have been sued at some point in federal court. If we change our unit of analysis to arrested officers, we see that... Uh, in our research, 22% or 1,232 officers out of the 5,545 officers in our database in 2005 through 2011 arrest cases have been sued at some point in their career in federal court under 1983. Now, this is kind of interesting because I'm not even sure why I put this variable in there originally, but it was something that interested me as a recovering attorney having practiced for many years in federal court. It always interests me that under 28 U.S.C. 1441, cases can be removed if they have a federal question in them from state court, from a county trial court, for example, to the United States District Court of Competent Jurisdiction. So here, 21% of the officers who've been sued under 1983 in federal court their cases originated in state trial courts and were removed to the U.S. District Court in their area. So that's really interesting. What that suggests to me, although I have no idea how common it is, frankly, for, for sworn law enforcement officers to find themselves being sued if they aren't in trouble otherwise, uh, but that's really interesting because it suggests to me that there's an awful lot of litigation going on in the state courts. And here what happens is the insurance counsel or, or a lawyer for the law enforcement agency looks at the complaint that's been filed and says there's no way in hell that we're going to litigate that in the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas, for example. We're going we're to defend that in federal court. There's a federal question. Now, some of these cases end up getting tossed back by the federal judge when they say there's no uh, federal question there, but 21% uh, removed from state courts to federal U.S. district courts. If you're not familiar, this is the federal uh, circuit map of the geographic boundaries of the courts of appeal and then the U.S. District Court's 94 or so federal districts, if my recollection is correct, across the country. And this first time I actually looked at this was last night. I'd forgotten to include it. I apologize for the small print, but what we have here are, if we look at the 1983 cases that we've got in our database here, we've got, remember, about 94 federal districts, and 86 of them are represented in the litigation. So it's all across the country. You know, I started this thinking, okay, we're going to see a lot of things in federal court in Philadelphia, you know, in places in the Southern District of New York, and you see in Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit, San Francisco. But the very first case I looked at when I had a graduate assistant working with me on this to see what they found, it was out of rural Montana. And that's what we see here. It's all over the country. Now, granted, Chicago and Cook County seem to be driving a lot of what's going on because 6.9% of the cases, 85 or, or the officers, were sued in the uh, U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. But as you can see here, the usual suspects are well 
you know, represented at the top of the list, but it's all over the country in all sorts of places, rural, urban, and everything in between. And then here, if we just look at the circuits, so if we add up the districts and put them into their circuits, it's pretty much what I would have expected. I, I would have thought that the Fourth Circuit had fewer officers being sued. That just sort of seems like it makes sense. But nothing here is like an outlier, you know. We've got the Ninth Circuit here. This should be percentages. So 10% of, uh, of the officers were sued in courts within the Ninth Circuit, for example. So here the D.C. Circuit, it's just 0.2%, but it's a small number. And then the next smallest would be 3% out of the First Circuit in New England. And again here, unlike most of what I'm dealing with, the unit of analysis, we've switched it here to arrested officer as opposed to arrest cases. What we have here is ultimately we were building regression models looking at uh, trying to predict what variables can predict when an officer who's been arrested is likely to be sued in federal court. So here we're just looking at the bivariate level. And what's amazing to me is we have about 100 variables here that are statistically significant chi-squares at the bivariate level with a p-value of 0.05 or less. So, and most of them are far less than that. So all sorts of variables all over the map. And we used that as a starting point when we were looking at logistic regression. So here, this is a model that's uh, backward stepwise a binary logistic regression model predicting uh, being named as a party defendant in a federal court civil action with a claim arising under 42 U.S.C. 1983 at some point during an officer's career. And if we look at the odds ratios, there are some interesting things, and it makes sense in terms of duty status makes sense. Some interesting things, though. Obviously, an officer is more likely to be sued if they've gotten in trouble when they were on duty. Uh, certain crimes seem to be big ones that are going to get an officer sued. Now, granted, we don't know the lawsuits. We haven't taken the time yet to look at whether they arise out of the same facts that they were arrested for. But I can tell you anecdotally, a lot of them have nothing to do with what they were arrested for. But here, the simple odds of an officer being uh, named as a 1983 defendant are greater if, for example, they've been charged with abduction or kidnapping. Well, that makes sense to me. And then this is uh, interesting. Sam Walker, uh, a number of years ago, talked about driving while female encounters, where a police officer will make a traffic stop, a pretext traffic stop, where they're really stopping somebody because they're an attractive young female, and it goes from bad to worse from there. Now, obviously, those are out-of-control predator-type behaviors that are going to get you sued, and that's what we see here. There are a number of factors that the federal courts have considered at looking at whether the off-duty actions of an officer that have resulted in getting them sued in federal court were committed in their official capacity. And that's what we got here. One of the variables that we have that relate to that is an officer who's arrested for a crime off-duty where in the course of committing the crime they identified themselves as a police officer. And there you can see uh, the simple odds that they're going to be sued in federal court are about uh, two times greater if they've been arrested off-duty where they identified themselves as a police officer. And then we see Cocaine's here. Cocaine drives a lot in terms of the drug-related crimes of police officers. It's cocaine, 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 marijuana, crack, uh, oxycodone, heroin. And I think it's going to flip in terms of heroin's going to take over in terms of some of the pills and things in the next few years. That's kind of an interesting uh, thing there. And then there are some things we can't really tell. And I apologize for how small this is, and I, but... We can't tell some things in terms of uh, logistic regression models. For example, years of service. Well, what is it about years of service other than a one-year increase in years of service? So here we're looking at classification tree analysis. So this is a CART 
analysis, classification and regression tree algorithm, where we're looking at the same exact thing as in the logit model. The variable that's driving everything is whether the officer was a, who was arrested, whether the crime they were arrested for was committed in their official capacity. And I use the same legal criteria for what the courts look at in the civil rights context in the civil actions there. And then the things that are driving it here have to do with either violence or nonviolence, and then years of service. And when I looked at this and tried to make sense of it, the one thing that I keep thinking about, same kind of thing with lawyers and legal malpractice insurance. It's a claims-based policy, so it's real cheap the first year you're practicing law and it gets more and more expensive. Why? Because you got more opportunities to screw up the longer you're around, right? So that seems to be the thing here, too. It's pretty unusual that an officer uh, will end up getting arrested and sued in their first few months on the job or things like that. So the longer you're on the job, the more likely it is that you're going to run into both types of uh, problems in terms of police crime and other types of police misconduct that are going to get you sued. I tend not to put discussion points on it because I always run out of time assuming somebody else shows up on the panel. But also I get some good ideas usually at conferences from, t from talking to people where somebody will ask a question or raise a point that's something you know that I hadn't thought of or looks at things a little bit differently. And it's always important to do before you finalize a paper to submit it for publication consideration in a journal. So with that, any questions or comments? Yes, sir. Looking at uh, Sam Walker's uh, driving while female. Yeah. Abuse, abusiveness on the part of police. What kind of level of abuse uh, would put you in federal court in that kind of thing? I know a guy, a girl, uh, and he, he, he slapped with a resisting arrest even though there was no such real intended. And how would that ever get into Well, typically it's more serious, more egregious type things. So the, the driving while female encounter a scenario that Walker talked about encompasses those types of things, but it also encompasses everything from stopping somebody to ask her out or get her phone number, uh, to get more information on her, to sexually assaulting her, raping her while on duty. So what we're looking at quite often here are the forcible rape cases committed on duty while driving a police car where you made a traffic stop, that kind of thing. And by the way, what we see in those cases is once there's one case that gets into the media where there's an officer who's been charged, there's always five more victims that come forward with real claims that end up getting prosecuted. And there's a case right now, or many cases right now, in Oklahoma City involving a young officer who had apparently involved in uh, uh, behaviors, allegedly, you know, uh, raping um, more than a dozen women on duty in the few years he worked there. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, he's collected, coded incredible amount of data, so my yeah. thoughts Well, thank you. Um, my, uh, I know you're Talk is focused on the lawsuits, but I'm really very curious about the arrests. Mm -hmm. Don't mind if I ask about No. Um, so there's two quick things I want to ask about. Have you been able to disaggregate the um, cases of arrests for manslaughter, negligent homicide, um, in terms of whether they were in official capacity at the time, on duty, off duty? Yeah. A reporter contacted me in August from a place called Talking Points Memo and asked me that a question about that, and I said, you know what, we don't have that. And I thought about it for a few days, and I realized, actually, I, I, can, I can do something with that because we've added a series of supplemental variables over the last few years. The problem with that is you've got to go back and have a trained graduate assistant, trained, retrained, retrained and then retrained, you know, constantly, and go back. We have so many cases, it becomes a long process. But one of the variables had to do with whether an officer was arrested for a crime where they had pulled, pointed, threatened, 
or used a firearm in the commission of the crime. And through that, I was able to determine that we had, during the same period, 2005 to 2011, 31 cases where an officer had been charged with firearms involved murder or non-negligent manslaughter. 31 cases on duty. And another 10 firearms-related negligent manslaughter cases. If I can ask... Uh do you have plans to look at case processing post-arrest in terms of convictions? Yes. The, the problem with that is I keep talking myself in circles as to whether there are some problems with some of the variables that we've developed. And what I've learned, among other things, is that pilot studies are very, very important. So we're, we're looking at things like uh, the conviction level, whether it's misdemeanor or uh, felony, uh, whether they were detained uh, pending trial or whether they were able to make bail. We looked at the, the number of months uh, sentenced. Um, a great comparative analysis. You can yeah, but the variable that the, the problem came in with, I came up with a list of uh, categories of cases that had resulted in a non-conviction. And I thought I had a mutually exclusive, exhaustive list, and I found out I had nothing near that. I don't think I had things, for example, of uh, no bill returned by a grand jury considering an indictment on that. I recently asked my colleague, and his initial thought, I haven't given him the, the data to look at yet, was that, that what I described to him would actually add so much to our knowledge that I really shouldn't worry about you know, some of the minutiae with that problem variable that, that the categories that we came up with actually capture an awful lot. But the question I have with that one variable, for example, is whether my research assistants might have forced something in a certain case to put it in the category because I only gave them the six options. When, and then I've looked at some things where you, know, you come up with like 50 different options. And it gets even more complicated because I've looked at lists in some studies where in the federal courts where they've looked at that. But think about the fact that we're in every state, the District of Columbia and the federal court system, it's really hard to come up with all the different scenarios. So that one variable has gotten me sort of slowed down in that regard. But yet, the case processing variables are sort of my next area of focus of what's really something I'm looking forward to and interests me. So, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Speaking of the case processing, I didn't understand, um, uh, you know, the, 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 you, I saw the um, around pie that you did about uh, removal from state to federal. Mm -hmm. And I would assume that uh, prosecutions are starting in state court. Well, I mean, these states well, we, uh, uh, of crimes that these people are committing. And then that it's a federal Section 1983 case, separate, completely separate. Um, so how are you finding out all the. The, um, I don't remember the number, but, but in terms of the criminal cases, um, you, you know, uh, yeah. a fair number of the cases are prosecuted in federal court, the criminal cases, and that's one of the variables that we track. So you wouldn't track. follow this. I mean, as we sit here, I, I'm, I'm glued to this because Ferguson's going to come down in there. Right. And, 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 you know, I'm well, that's state court. You wouldn't capture it here, would you? The criminal case? Yeah. Yeah. If an officer's arrested, if they were, if they're, the, you know, our case inclusion criteria, if they're arrested for a crime that occurred while they were a law enforcement officer or while they were a law enforcement officer, they were arrested for a crime that occurred at another time. So either one of those criteria, right, right. but it's both federal and state court. Yeah, oh, so PACER captures that. No, PACER doesn't come into play yet. The way... So if we step back just a little bit, um, so I wanted to study this area. Initially, it was to win a bet. 
in a, uh, a grad school class. I won the bet long, long ago. But it was the question was, do officers get uh, arrested very often? And if so, for what? There's, there's no data on that, which is something I can't really say a whole lot longer because the, the Justice Department is paying us to develop this data, right? So um, once we have included a case in our database. We log it in, it meets our case and conclusion criteria, which includes a few other things, but I mentioned a few of them. Then, ultimately, a few years later, once the cases have been, you know, gone through the system, we will code the content of all the documents that we have, and we have about 270 variables. How do you find out about a state prosecution to begin with? It's a news article. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. So everything, it's all based on news articles. So I developed 48. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm sure you guys caught that. That's okay. I'm looking for the pacer. Well, maybe I didn't explain it very well. If you're asking the question, I can no, only no, assume I, that. I, I'm so, so we have um, 48 search terms that I, uh, they're just, you know, that you would search, not the Google search engine, but the Google news search engine. Okay, that drives stuff to the Google News page. But I'm not interested in the Google News page. I'm interested in that search engine. All right. So there are search terms that are set up that constantly run over and over again to see if some article has been published in the last day that would hit on any of those terms. And then I get an email saying there's a hit and here's the link to it. We print out the articles and then see if it meets our case criteria. So it could be federal court. It could be state court. It's so labor-intensive. It's very labor-intensive. It's terrific. No, it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, students who work with me on that, and and it's very hard to do at this point. We also um, it's very hard to do because it is so labor intensive. And I'll give you one example of that. Since 2011, we've gone back and we actually make Google alerts for the individual officers that we've logged into our database. So now we track the cases. And what's happening though is where we had you know, so many file cabinets full of our paper. Uh, it's all digitized now, but we still have the paper that initiates it all. And we're generating as much as we generated in the first seven years every nine to 10 months now because we're following the cases through. So those case processing variables that we're interested in in the years 2011 forward, we're going to have a lot richer data, a lot less missing data to work with. So yeah, it, it is a labor-intensive process. And I wish there was an easier answer to it. There's nowhere, you know. Yeah, I, I just didn't believe I'd actually heard what I heard. I think he could have done that. Yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> that's what we've done. So we're adding about 1,100 cases a year. Uh -huh. um, so it's it's a lot of a I, lot of I'd cases. Also just one second thing um, your your uh, table about um, how many are uh, filed in different uh, district courts, uh, and and your conclusion, yeah, your conclusion is that in fact it's it's nicely distributed. Uh, there aren't any big hot spots. Well, there are some hot spots in terms of the northern district of Illinois, the eastern district of Pennsylvania, eastern district of Louisiana. Well, not only that, but if you were to ask somebody who, who thinks about these things, you know, name five police departments or other non-federal law enforcement agencies that uh, might be problematic in terms of officers getting in trouble and getting involved in lawsuits, a few things come to mind. Chicago, New Orleans, Philadelphia, you know, the New York City area. Yeah, uh, Detroit. I, I really, I mean, uh, if you would control for population of the of the uh, uh, jurisdiction, right? And and uh, you know, it's not as if uh, 
small law enforcement is considered all that great. I, I'm just no, no, you make a good point. If we were to control for population, I, and now I see what your point is, that this is what surprised me. So I went to law school in, in the District of Columbia. I went to a law school that trained a lot of people to be civil rights lawyers. And in my mind, you know, you're only going to find these people in, in, the, uh, in the big cities. You know, lawyers are willing to take these cases, especially a lot of them are taken on contingencies. But you're right. And, and my point that the very first case we looked at when, you know, a uh, graduate assistant started, you know, using the PACER system, we trained them to use it. The first hit they got was a case out of rural Montana. So it's everywhere. So what that means is it suggests to me, first of all, that law enforcement officers are getting sued in the federal courts all over the place, but also apparently um, people who have allegedly been uh, done wrong, uh, potential plaintiffs in civil rights actions, are able to find lawyers in every nook and cranny across no, the country. I, this is such an important finding. I mean, I just want to underscore, uh, I, I, I've studied this for, for a couple of decades now. Uh, I mean, you know, Section 1983 stuff, I did some publishing, and, and people would always say, yeah, um, this private attorney general model mm -hmm. is the alternative to a uh, federal regulatory uh, system more along the lines of Section 1441, that, that, that it penetrates uh, from the ground up, uh, it the, the, the law penetrates down and from the ground up because the, these attorneys live in the community and practice law in the community right. and are willing to learn about the federal law to do this. It is the most efficient and uh, community-oriented police misconduct right. control you can do, and this proves that. This is sure. really important. I mean, you're, well, thank you. You're, 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 doing, you're showing that this is uh, a, a bit, that it, what people have said all over the years in defense of the lawsuits and saying they're a good thing mm -hmm. is true. What's your name? Uh, McCoy. Okay, that as you were talking, I realized you're Candace McCoy. So, so uh, on the plane out here, I finally got around to reading your chapter in your book on uh, holding police accountable. Oh, right. That's what I read on the, and I had six hour delay in Chicago. So, as you were talking, I was thinking about. Well, that's exactly what McCoy said in terms of looking at this instead of dealing with yeah, instead of dealing with the uh, exclusionary rule. Yeah, so yeah. the other thing I didn't mention is really, I, I could never prove it. I can prove it now. I, well, I would love to collaborate with you, and I, and I will tell you that. My dissertation research when I was uh, at IUP, when I was starting to formulate it, I sat down uh, at a pub with Paul McCulley, and Paul McCulley said. Um, I had this idea, and I talked to Jim Fife about it. And you know, I really look at the work that your late husband did as as where I'm picking up. So, oh, yeah. so Fife and Kane, 2006 yeah, is where. Yeah. So I never had the opportunity to meet to meet Jim, but um, but yeah. So so I haven't finished your chapter, by the way, because the plane landed. But but I kept going back and getting well, stuck in the footnotes. Proven. The, yeah. The, the, the allegation I made, the, the statement I made that uh, this is a regime of control of the police that is cheap and community oriented, and that is more effective than anything Washington can do. Is is my uh, my yeah. And yeah. You're proven. Right here. Well, thank you. I, I 
honestly forgot to put this in there until last night. I forgot that I had a GA go back and code everything, you know, add the variable last summer where we looked at the districts. Um, but but it's, um, and, and that's as far as I've gotten into thinking on it was, you know, reading your chapter on the plane ride out here. Yes, sir. Well, you guys have to know a lot more about this than I do, but my impression of civil uh, lawsuits is that usually the police officers are not held individually accountable. They're not trying to pay anything. They're not get fired. Well, that... There's a reason for that, and that's why I took off after Manel. That you know, as a as a former trial lawyer who practiced civil rights law, you know, as a recovering attorney now, I can tell you that there wasn't a whole lot of interest in my law firm in in the the pockets of a law enforcement officer. It was it was the deep pocket of the Philadelphia Police Department, for example. Yeah, the Insurance Council. But that's a good thing. Is that a problem? Well, you said because, controlling police officers, but if oh, they, oh, it absolutely it is. It does control them. At the, oh, I'm sorry. You go ahead. No, no. <laughs> no, it's it's really important for controlling. First of all, uh, they'll bitch and moan, and, and getting sued, whether they actually end up paying a judgment or not, is is uh, a great pain to them. It it outs them. Avoid that, and and they they they. Furthermore, there's lots of training that developed over the years. That's the chapter. You know, you can you can map how police training and supervision improved significantly as Section 1983 took hold. And the reason was that the cities were losing money and their insurance people said, it's really important, the insurance part of this, the insurers said, uh, we are not going to insure you unless you improve. Right. And so they had to. Uh, it's not just me. Charles F. wrote a book about this. Mm -hmm. And it's really a big part of his book. It's uh, EPP, uh, uh, Charles. Um, uh, the, the piece of it that I added was uh, how the insurers uh, uh, really were, the, uh, in my opinion, the um, variable that, uh, that caused, uh, you can see the causation there. I mean, you could just follow it. So, Candace, they, the uh, federal courts digitized things starting about, uh, started scanning things in around the year 2000 with electronic filing and all. So, for the Officers who were sued after that, we've got not only the docket sheet, but in a lot of the cases, we've gotten as many of the pleadings as we could afford to do. You know, a ten cents a page view using NIJ's money. You know, we we spent ten thousand dollars using Pacer, but we've got the, um, you know, in many cases, the uh, um, a good number of the pleadings starting with the complaint. And I have no idea what to do with that other than that several years worth of interesting research right there. Yeah, yeah, and that's the, that's the thing about this research is that in some prior research where they've looked at published opinions, you know, that they find in Lexis or Westlaw, that's not what these cases are. Almost every one of these cases, not every case, but the vast majority of these cases, they settle. They do not go to trial. Yeah, yeah. so and you're settled, and, and you're lucky if you find out much money they settled for. That's very hard to figure out, and we can't figure that out in most of those cases because unless somebody made a mistake and somehow it got under the docket sheet right. or an exhibit right. to something or a note from the judge, you, there's there's nothing in the record with the court. In fact, that's a condition of settling the case with, with in my experience, with, with insurance counsel. Yeah. Absolutely. That number, they didn't want they don't. We couldn't. We couldn't say that. Um, uh, the chapter you were referring to. I got that information way back when uh, because uh, a defunct insurance company released it, gave me their records. Right. And it was it was an, uh, the insurer of the National Sheriffs Association and all the all the county sheriffs nationwide had insurance with them. 
and they went out of business, uh, not because of that. Uh, right. And and it turned out that the, the settlements that was way long ago, but they were they were small. Yeah, and if you look if you look at sheriff's and insurance right now, the only thing that's driving new jail construction in this country is when insurance carriers will no longer provide coverage to county jails like Indiana County, Pennsylvania, Lucas County, Ohio. You know, that that's what's driving it when they can't get insurance in there. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I came in late on this, but yeah. I want to second what you said. I, I'm a former police officer turned lawyer. I settled, I settled one 1983 case a million years ago and a police trainer um, mm -hmm. in part through my old university. And the benefits of the 1983 litigation in improving police training are staggering. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely um, right. People don't realize it. And the, poli the police bitch, right. because they're being sued. Nobody wants to be sued, but the overall effect is so good. Now, is there a huge difference between the circuits? Because my this is from practice years ago in the 80s. My understanding was in the Fourth Circuit, where I used to practice, it was so conservative, I had the federal judge call and congratulate me in my one small settlement of a 1983 wow. case that almost every case back in the 80s was summary judgmented in favor of the municipality. Yeah, well, was this in the Eastern District of Virginia? No, uh, this was Maryland. Okay, so, yeah, I've litigated cases in the federal court in Maryland, but in, in the Eastern District of Virginia with the rocket docket, it, I would think there's a disincentive for attorneys to file 1983 actions as with any other kind of litigation civil or criminal, because everything's moving so fast in that court that it becomes very expensive to litigate. Well, it was quite a challenge for me, because I mostly did mm -hmm. legal stuff in state court. Mm -hmm. And so it was quite a challenge a to take a, quite a learning mm -hmm. curve. Yep. The fact that I beat summary judgment in the case that I settled right. was the judge considered extraordinary. Yeah. No, it's interesting in that in, in looking at the complaints, the 1983 complaints, or the complaints in federal court that for civil actions that include causes of action under 1983. I can look at them and, and sort of guess when somebody was admitted to the bar, how long they practice in the area, do they primarily practice in state court, is it a fact pleading or a notice pleading state that they normally practice in because somehow they don't know there's no heightened pleading requirement under 1983 anymore. You know, it's really interesting stuff. So you had a question? Yeah, I know. I think I'm, probably I know far less than the U.S. and the stuff. But what might be of interest, I spent the last couple of years working in the San Jose City all of the litigation is in And we defended a number, I'm not an attorney, we defended a number of 1983 claims. But what I'm wondering about in terms of finding data, one thing that we practiced, I don't know how many other municipalities do this, but every settlement we had to go to council, essentially. If it was under $50,000, it was closed session, and it wasn't yeah. public. If it was over $50,000, it's so varied across the country because of the the um, you know open access records laws and things like that are different in different places but I will tell you that uh, in many instances it doesn't have to be disclosed if if the insurance carrier is making the payment it the dollar amount doesn't go before you know city council or something like that at all it's not public monies is it the amount of money really that, that would cause change in accountability? Maybe not, because the very fact of incurring the lawyer's fees and incurring 
you know, all of the, the hassle that goes into this and the review that you have to do along the way to defend it, uh, it's almost as if the process is the punishment, it's not the punishment. Oh, right. 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 The other part of this is the San Jose assault for sure. Oh, God. Oh, that's a, that's a different yeah, kettle of fish. Yeah. Well, and Baltimore. Baltimore is yeah. tough. So it's New York City, and they I just pay out hand over fist. They don't exactly. care. I don't know why. Well, Baltimore never used to pay out. And if you, I don't know, I mean, we've had a whole series of stuff that just came to light in the paper of settlements totaling um, right. millions of dollars. Right. I think and, dollars. And they see that the same officers, you know. Yeah. And the police department hadn't been tracking. We have a sophisticated police department. <laughs> they hadn't been tracking. Or if they were tracking, they weren't paying attention to it. I yeah. always yell about yeah. that. Don't you have a feedback loop? And then they do. You ready? When, okay, they do know. That's right. They do know, but they don't pay attention to it. contracts right. put them out there anyway after arbitration, and the arbitrators send them back to it yeah, it, yeah. in fact, that exact scenario, you look at the Philadelphia Inquirer online today, yes. exactly that scenario in a story. And, exactly. And it, it doesn't end in Philadelphia. I mean, I don't know. I, I, the arbitrators must be in the, in the employ of the police unit. Yeah. I, yes, sir. Oh, I just came to raise my hand, actually. But, but oh. if, if, our, if our interest methodologically is in police departments, mm -hmm. what methodological problems do we have uh, Tweaking some of this data and interpretation over to profiling well, departments. My interest department. is in as a criminologist in you know crime by uh -huh. police officers and hidden crime. Uh -huh. I don't know how to answer but, the question because I'm really not interested in the in the departments per se. Yeah, departments per se, and then I guess it's the frequency that these police, these particular this small set of police policemen have gotten in this kind of problem. I don't know how small the numbers are. I didn't have a preconceived notion on this, but I was surprised that time and time again we keep getting these hits on names where somebody's arrested for something rather, you know, innocuous, and yet we we find their names in that they've been sued in federal court for civil rights violations. By the way, anecdotally, we see because the way it used to be set up with the Pacer interface online was sometimes we end up clicking all types of cases. And we've seen an awful lot of officers who uh, appear to have been involved in bankruptcy and yeah. filed for bankruptcy. Yes, sir. I'm curious whether police departments uh, will take uh, disciplinary action based on arrests alone. So my suspicion is that many of these arrests don't actually go forward very far towards conviction. Um, so I'm wondering if, if, if indeed police departments do um, people for getting arrested, and secondly, how you could empirically actually uh, examine that question. I guess you could department websites, and do they even list the police officers? But, you know, getting a police officer fired is, under union contract, exceptionally difficult. Right. It, it, it goes to arbitration, the due process required, as it should be. But often this conduct doesn't require a conviction, right? If, an off, if somebody's arrested off... Well, Jim Fife said that there was not a bright line that you could make with off-duty and on-duty crime. And I noticed Rob Kane seems to have switched on that, and I don't understand his reasoning for that. Because you can't, you can't draw a line, and it goes all the way back to Jim's work and something I want to get back to. Because we have a variable you might be interested in knowing 
of uh, what he called bizarre violence. So the off-duty gun stuff that's just weird. My favorite Jim on that was the Philadelphia police officer who got drunk at his daughter's wedding and shot the groom. Well, that point, by the way, there was just a Pennsylvania state trooper in Pittsburgh, that same scenario within the last six months. So, and, and the one that, uh, yeah, well, I'll just leave it at that. But, but that's a variable I'm really interested in because the policing is violent. Cops have guns when they're off duty. Well, and most of the, the number two, number one simple assaults, I'm not sure whether those are off, probably mostly off. DWI has got to be mostly off. So uh, no, not necessarily. It depends on the department. For example, Indianapolis. Yeah, Indianapolis. For example, they they did not have a prohibition against um, stopping and drinking and or buying a few six packs on the way home in your take home cruiser. Probably not gonna get stopped in the cruiser. What? No, but you get in a car accident. So David Bizarre in Indianapolis is now in prison, having been convicted of you know uh, vehicular manslaughter in in on duty DUI case, and his is not an isolated on duty DUI in Indianapolis. So about 13% of our DUI cases involve officers who are driving police cars, okay. and uh, over half of those they're actually on duty. Wow. Well, I mean, I, but my question is really about if one wanted to find out whether these Cops who discipline or removal mm -hmm. as a result. How would one do that? I mean, it's very well. Yeah, I mean, this is from a poster from last night, and you can't really see it here. But here we're looking at the final employment outcomes, okay. and here this is no action. This is the final employment action was suspended, but we're not aware of anything more. And then these two are either terminated involuntarily or resigned, which is very difficult to to flesh out sometimes because in some states they're just not going to disclose that type of information. Hmm? How did you get that data? That it, it ends up in news articles eventually if somebody lost their job. So I can tell you, for example, in South Carolina, if an officer gets DUI, they're going to probably be fired before the sun rises the next morning, before they're released from the jail, because it's a right-to-work state. Um, and that's just the way it is. Although, they're very unlikely to be convicted. In Georgia, they're very likely to be convicted. In Ohio, they're very likely to be convicted of the DUI. You know, there's a lot of interesting things. That, you can't really see anything there that it makes a whole lot of sense. Well, that's an interesting thing about, you know, are they going to get fired? Well, you can, uh, Roger Goldman's work, I don't know if you've been following out, about accreditation in police departments, or not departments, of, of the individual officer. Officers have to be uh, trained. Oh, certified, right. Right, and, and they can get convicted of crime and fired and still have their accreditation and go get go get another go get a job. Yeah. So we've seen that. By the way, when we when we um when when we designed a, a relational database to work with our digital imaging database, and so now it's an object relational database for those of you database type people. We had to figure out a way to set all this up so that we have cases separate from the individual because what we were seeing was officers who would lose their job after a DUI with a county sheriff somewhere in Arizona and then the next thing we know a year later they're working for uh, the Navajo Nation or some other tribe, you know, that kind of a thing or from municipal agency to municipal agency. But in terms of losing their job, the thing that shocked me the most here, having been a police officer myself in Virginia and New Hampshire, I thought if you got arrested as a police officer, you're, go you're done. And that's just not the case. And um, the ones that trouble me the most are officers who were convicted for what I believe are qualifying misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence. Right. That 
under the Lautenberg Amendment to the Federal Gun Control Act would be barred, prohibited from possessing and owning firearms and ammunition. And, but I could come up with a list of many dozen officers that we know still have their jobs, um, but have those types of con criminal convictions, and they haven't lost their job. They're carrying guns every day. Now, my purpose is not to, you know, out people and get them in trouble for, you know, Lautenberg uh, Amendment violations, but it, it's it's a strange thing. Yes, sir. No, I was just going to speak to that as, an, as another form of law enforcement officer and current municipal law enforcement employee is that so much of this is agency and agency policy specific in terms of outcome. I, mean, I know of and have worked in agencies where you can have more or less any misdemeanor conviction, you know, with the exception of a very few that would affect your ability to carry firearms, for example, and be fine. And the punishment is almost non existent. Versus other agencies where if you're convicted of DUI, Mm -hmm. or a lot of other things, you're out of a job. Mm -hmm. I mean, LAPD, for example, has always had something called what they refer to as a bail schedule. This is whatever mm -hmm. you get in trouble for, this is going to be your punishment. This is your mm -hmm. discipline. If it's right. a DUI, it's, it's shocking to me. It's shocking to me. Literally one agency to the one right next door. But it surprises us when we see officers, when we check the, you know, log in a new case, and we're like, wait a minute. We've seen this guy before. He's been arrested multiple times over the last decade while he was a law enforcement officer. And, and it's just, it's very, very strange and it's different from place to place, as you point out. And yeah. The other thing that I've noticed, and again, this is anecdotal with no real empirical evidence. Um, years ago, um, and Baltimore has never been known for kinder, gentler policing, but, but that said, Years ago, if, an, if there was a disciplinary action, because I represented a couple of officers in disciplinary action, you got an internal investigation file that was really well put together and looked like a homicide file. In fact, I represented a clerk towards shoplifting off duty, and it looked like a homicide file. And the trial board actually recommended that she be demoted. She didn't have access to sensitive information. We had a trial board. It recommended a lower punishment, like losing a grade in pay. Commissioner wouldn't take it, and the person was just fired on the spot. And she had, had rights with, through the Administrative yeah. Appeals Act, but she probably wasn't going anywhere. Now, what's happened over the years, and some of the police guys who I know, some of the commanders and some of the supervisors, have sat on trial boards, and they said that the presentations, and generally they'll give the benefit of doubt to a cop, but they mm -hmm. also know when not to, mm -hmm. and they said that the quality of the trial board presentation, of the trial board presentation, has declined precipitously, so that there were cases where they wanted to fire the people, but didn't have enough evidence. Um, and I don't, th I, don't, I don't think this is political, I think this is just a general decline in day-to-day -day competence of organizational affairs. I don't know that, um, but it's to, yeah. to have a police officer say that was yeah. staggering. Oh my God! Yes, sir. Yeah, I would actually totally agree. I mean, I, having worked in a couple of big cities recently, the quality of legal representation on the side of the police management can be staggeringly poor, and that that can turn the case. I mean, you're talking about people who clearly should be discharged from employment. When you're in an administrative environment where there are these legal representations on either side, and you've got a police union with some fantastic legal representation, an excellent casework, and you've got a beleaguered deputy city attorney or private contracted counsel who maybe they got the matter the night before, maybe they're brand new on the job. I think so much of it turns simply on that. Wow. Yeah. 
A friend of mine I went to law school with, who's now a law professor at a big university in the Midwest, was telling him about the work I was doing with domestic violence, and he sat and listened to it, and he says, you know, uh, he had worked for a law firm in Washington, D.C. that represented public employees who got in trouble. And he said, you know, I was always amazed at all the off-duty arrests of police officers, He's, especially with domestic violence. He said, we never saw that with any of the firefighters. Huh. You know, it was a really interesting comment. Firefighters are happy. Yeah, got good yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's the difference. So, the, the whole thing about the gun carrying runs runs smack dab into the gun culture and the debates about gun control. But I mean, think about it. If if we required police officers when they go off duty to lock their guns in a secure lock, which is what Jim said, right? Exactly. Right. And exactly what Jim said. He said, you know, and and it would it would just prevent so much tragedy, you know. But no, no, we have a right to the guns. Wait a minute. Well, Candace, at some point, I'd like you to see the cases we've coded for bizarre violence, his term. Right. It's just shocking, the, the crazy stuff in the scenario that you mentioned. It. I forget who mentioned it. Then yeah. it runs smack dab. You know, you've got a right to the gun. Um, yep. You yep. Know, and and I, the police officer is 24-7, and you never know. The bad guys remember him and know where he lives. He's going to go get him. And, yeah. And I, it's just irrational. It is irrational. I got into a, an interesting discussion with a cousin of mine who was explaining to me why it was necessary that he take his taser home from work. And it's just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I do have, do you have a last question? No, it was just yeah. a relevant I mean, it, it makes as much sense. I, I work in a fork with police administrators. Many of them are sworn, usually wear uniforms. And the only thing they carry on a daily basis is a gun. And I think, why? <laughs> why? Yeah, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, You're in a secure it, it, environment. Yeah. Just, uh, you think with all of the discussion of gun control, even though I know it's a hot button political issue that is emotional and irrational and it doesn't have a lot to do with gun control, still, you think that, that just becomes more questioning. Access to firearms. It does. And then it's also the families of the police officers, the tragedies that happen, the suicides. Or kids. Yeah, not accidental. In any event, thank you very much. I apologize, I had no contact from the other panelists. So. Thank you. It, make, it makes this six hour layover in Chicago worthwhile. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. It was recorded on November 21st, 2014, in San Francisco, California, at the annual conference of the American Society of Criminology. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm a professor at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. For more information on my research, go to www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost. This project was supported by award number 2011 IJCX0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed are those of the author alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice.